Wilhelm just stuffed him. Well, the ball is actually a little short of the one yard line now. It is fourth down, the final play, unless they can stick it in the end zone. Andre Johnson, Roscoe Parrish, and Kellen Winslow, and Dorsey under pressure throws it. Incomplete. The Buckeyes win. And welcome to episode number 22 of the Sportscasters. It is May 31st, a very hot and hazy Buffalo, New York. Okay. Summer is here. It's like 90 degrees out or something crazy today. Not good for anyone. No, not unless you're in a pool or not in air conditioning. Yeah, but uh, a bunch of things to go over here at the top of the show. First thing, just real quick, a shout out to a new listener. His name is Evan Sally. He's from the city of Tanawanda. He's tweeted me a couple times just to let me know he's listening. So wanted to say hello to Evan. Nice. And thank him for listening. Also, another thing I wanted to mention is kind of a partnership that the sportscasters have with a summer hockey league called the FHL. Uh, that stands for the Fatty Hockey League. It used to be the Friars Hockey League. Not exactly sure why they changed it. Uh, but it is a really awesome hockey league for the D1 uh, pro and junior hockey players to kind of get together over the summer, those that are still in the Buffalo area, and play hockey. Pat Kane plays, Tim Kennedy plays, yeah. Andrew Peters plays. Uh, many of the D1 and junior hockey players play. Yeah, I was going to say, you hear summer hockey league and people are going to be like, well, who cares? But this is this is legit. You see guys that are either established as pros or guys that are going to be pros. It's kind of like watching uh, the playground basketball or something in the summer. I mean, these yeah, it's it's kids fatty, are for real. It's fattyhockeyleague.com is their website. You can see our logo there. F-A-T-T-E-Y, correct? Right. And if you're on our website, you can see their logo. It's the a red hockey player with 2011 in blue underneath him. And uh, they basically, you can check out their site. They have, and you can follow them too at Fatty Hockey. F-A-T-T-E-Y, hockey. And uh, we did a live blog from their opening night the other day, and you can find that on thesportscasters.blogspot.com. And there's some cool videos there, some pictures of Pat Kane, the main man. Uh, kind of cooled down. Everyone was kind of crowded around. Uh, everyone was in the rink watching Pat play, and he busted a stick and gave it to a kid on the way out. That's nice. Yeah, so he treats kids a lot nicer than cab drivers. <laughs> Uh, but another thing as the weeks go on and the partnership grows is we're going to hopefully have some really cool athlete spotlights. Probably not with Pat Kane if he hears that joke I just threw <laughs> out. But just kidding. Yeah, just kidding, Pat, uh, if you do hear that. Uh, but uh, Pat Kane should be on, also Tim Kennedy. And uh, we'll get a chance to talk to some of the up-and-coming uh, Division One hockey players or junior hockey players. Uh, so the Fatty Hockey League. And this week we're going to have two shows. This is episode 22, the first. And we're going to have episode 23, the second. And the reason I bring it up is because on the second episode, we're going to try a new segment called 9 and 90 that we're going to debut with a fatty hockey league player who also plays for the Windsor Spitfires of the OHL, John Cohen. And we're going to try that at the end of episode number two this week. As for the show 
that you're listening to right now, episode 22. This is the big show that we've been waiting a long time for. We're finally going to have a chance to talk to James Andrew Miller, the author of Those Guys Have All the Fun Inside the World of ESPN. It's kind of an interview that we've been preparing for before we even had the sportscasters. Uh, It's one of the initial things that we set up, and we had to be patient and wait for the book to come out. And finally, today is the day that we get to talk to James Miller. Also, in this episode, we'll have a short book club update, and we will have an interview with Glenn Davis of a really cool website called SportsGrid, www.sportsgrid.com. Really uh, exciting and interesting guy. We'll bring him on to talk in a little bit, and we will end with pick four. A lot to do, so why don't we get started with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. (laughs) This is the funnest night ever. (laughs) Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. Okay, three things for this episode, a little bit different. We thought there were basically three huge news stories out there. So we are going to do three things together, uh, going back and forth on the three main news themes this week. And on episode number 23, we're going to have sort of a lighter edition of three things where we will both have uh, three different kind of lighter stories to talk about. So... First up, shambles. Ohio State, you are in shambles. What yeah, do you this, think, Don? This, this wasn't a secret, though. I mean... It's been coming. The resignation uh, slash polite way of firing him, I mean, it, it's been on its way for a while. A lot of people linked it to the SI article, and when we talk late, later on in an interview, we'll hear about how that wasn't as scathing as we thought, but yeah, I mean, people knew it was coming, and good. I mean... You know, this is one of those cases where people got in trouble because the cover-up was worse than the lie. Right. And I don't think anyone would say that it's possible to run a program as big as Ohio State's without occasionally having people who run a tattoo parlor trade goods and take advantage of your players. Right. But if you get (laughs) caught, you can't cover it up. You have to fess to it. You have to accept whatever punishment comes with it. You have to move on. Every big program in the country has basically had at least one turn on probation. Oklahoma's been on probation. USC is on probation right now. Things happen when you deal with programs that are this big. And Ohio State, you know, the SI article really does a good job of talking about how Jim Trestle has a lot of good qualities. And he, he, he's, a, he's into prayer, he's into church, he's a good mentor for these players, but he also has a dark side, and that dark side is that he chooses to, to be ignorant when he needs to be a leader, and it's haunted him ever since he's been at Youngstown. And what I mean by that is uh, in, when he knows that a star player is driving around in a car that he can't afford, instead of doing something about it, he's decided to try to remain ignorant of it, try to ignore it. Right. And, and when he sees uh, 15 players lined up with sleeve tattoos they didn't have when they showed up on campus that would cost $1,000, they know that they can't afford, he start asking some questions. Ohio State has six NCAA compliance officers on staff at school. What do they do? I, I, it'd be <laughs> nice to know. Uh, obviously, obviously, they don't go to tattoo parlors. No, I guess not. 
You know, and uh, I, I, I don't blame the players. You know, I mean, you know, some of the players, maybe a Terrell Pryor, ha- knows that there's so much scrutiny on him and maybe he should know better and know that he has to toe the line maybe a little bit more than the 100th player on the roster. Uh, but these are kids who see the NCAA making billions of dollars right. off of their blood, off of their sweat, off of their tears. And some of them come, a lot of them come from very poor backgrounds, very poor neighborhoods. And these rich boosters take advantage of that. And uh, it's almost impossible to eliminate. Yeah, I mean, they're giving everything on their way up within the rules. And a lot of that is like, I mean, they're treated like royalty. Like you hear about like the lunches and stuff like these kids eat. And it's like they're not necessarily uh, eating at the mess hall with the rest of the kids and stuff at the college. And just all the the nice treatment they're given to begin with, it, it's hard for, I mean, like you said, they should know better a little bit, but who's who's to turn it down necessarily like it's it's a bigger problem with the way the league is run and the fact that these kids aren't paid and that they're they see how much money uh i heard someone mention today on the radio that if you look at the what's on tv section of like your newspaper during like on a saturday every single game of any importance in college is on tv to millions of viewers and somebody's making a boatload of money off it and it it would be real hard it would take a big person for one of these kids to just ignore it or to try to pretend it isn't there. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's the responsibility of the big players, the players that are definitely going to cash in. It's maybe their responsibility to do their best to just wait. You know, like Reggie Bush, I think, had a bigger responsibility to USC uh, than he he was going to be a millionaire. He didn't need to get right. that house right then. Right. He could have waited. He could have been responsible for the program. But I think, you know, I can understand the 80th guy on the roster, the guy that's never going to make it to the NFL, kind of trying to take advantage of what he can before he has to return to the poor surroundings that he grew up in. Right. I mean, that's points a little bit to the bigger problem, too, which is graduation rates, which I know doesn't directly correlate, but there are the five, ten kids that are going to get drafted every year from an Ohio State. But there's all, I mean, to those 5'10", there's 60. They might be treated like kings for four years or five years if they're redshirted or whatever, but then they're going to go home empty-handed if they're not smart and get their degrees. And But it just doesn't seem like it's it's pushed. Like, the NCAA has some uh, backwards morality. And, you know, I think the biggest, the most shocking part of this story is that Jim Trestle let it get to the point where he was humiliated and had to resign. I mean, Pete Carroll was long gone before right, it hit right. the fan at USC, right? And that's another so. big problem with the NCAA. You get these coaches that will resign from one job. They leave the job, uh, but that doesn't mean the troubles leave with them. The school faces sanctions or whatever. Uh, the players are left behind. Right. Uh, they now, can't transfer unless they sit out a year. Right. Schools have to forfeit championships, even though that's kind of a meaningless Thing to take away because you take it away in title, but knowing they want it, they anyway. want it anyway, right. right? But yeah, I mean, the co- if he wants to, he could sign on somewhere. I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if he does. All right, the number two big story today: the NHL is back in Winnipeg, and luckily, that means it is gone from one of the more nightmarish locations. Yeah, and that being Atlanta, oh for two, Atlanta on hockey. <laughs> Yeah, the more I heard about Phoenix moving, the I even I, I might have said on the podcast. I said I don't understand 
why Atlanta doesn't get moved. I mean, they. I mean, I, I guess if the owner wants to continue to pay for an empty building, he can. But apparently, he didn't, and they got moved. Uh, a lot of interesting stuff about this. One, they might not even be called the Winnipeg anything. It's possible they're going to be called Manitoba. Manitoba yeah. uh, my initial reaction: someone asked me on Facebook, like, "What name do they take?" And I said, be "Well, it's a no. It's yeah. a no-brainer. The Jets." Yeah, be the Jets. But they're not the Jets. Phoenix was the Jets, so. Maybe they don't do that. I mean, I still kind of think that would probably be the front runner because you've already got the built-in uh, fan base a little bit there, and and I think it works people for Cleveland, I people guess. love nostalgia, too, right, right, and will love the opportunity to break out the old gear. Yep, you know, and you know, maybe if Timu Solani retires, he could be there to drop the first puck, you know, or uh, maybe they might even might even be somewhere he might consider playing for a year. That'd yeah, be, that'd be kind of fun. Um, but you know, one thing that I read that was interesting. It's the first first NHL team to move for 14 years. Uh, actually, K- Hartford was the last team to move when they moved to Carolina. Carolina. And uh, in that time, teams have moved in every other sports league. One baseball team, I think. Uh, maybe three football teams. I can't find the exact numbers, but every other major sport has had uh, relocations. The NBA, NFL, and Major League Baseball since the last time that the NHL was forced to move a franchise. They don't like to do it, but I think that this is a time where it was a no-brainer. Um, I think that the team didn't work in Atlanta. They have a 15,000-seat arena ready in Manitoba. It's cold there, unfortunately. Very cold, uh, especially in the winter. But this is a team that will get new life. And if I was a player on Atlanta, I might be a little bummed to be going to 50 below-degree weather. <laughs> But I would be happy to go somewhere where people cared about what I did. Yeah, it it's uh, hard to believe that for so long there were three Florida NHL teams. I mean, it, football doesn't work there, and football works everywhere. It's a college football state for the most part. It's a it just doesn't work. It it never has worked, and it's uh it's about time. The one thing I did see, and I wish I can credit the Thrashers. Uh, I think it was called Save the Thrashers or something like that on Twitter. Uh, no, not Save Well, <laughs> no, <laughs> well, no, yeah, they failed. Yeah. But they said their last goal, and I'm not sure if they expect Winnipeg to do it or Atlanta to do it ceremoniously or something like that, but they said retire number 37. You think there's any chance they do that, Dan Snyder's number? Mm, that'd be a nice gesture. I think I, there's a chance. Yeah, I mean, I, I, maybe it'd be nice for Atlanta to do it before they shut the doors. Retire and the him. reason that they would want to do that is because Danny Heatley killed him. <laughs> right. Just in case anyone missed the story. Right. Uh, Dan Snyder is a player for the Thrashers who was killed in a car accident. Car yeah. being driven by a drunken Danny, Danny Heatley. Yeah. Uh, the stat is actually 16 years, not 14, since the NHL last relocated a team. And in that same period, the National Football League has moved four teams National Basketball Association three and Major League Baseball one. So pretty stable. NHL franchises essentially are stable for the most part. There's maybe one or two more that could maybe move to more ideal locations. I think. Yeah, Batman's almost stubbornly uh, works about is all about stability. But I guess it helped uh, the Sabers. So yeah, it did. Um, they don't move teams on a whim in the NHL, and I give them credit for that. Right. And, it makes me confident that if this team did move, it is because every last resource was exhausted and it was just the absolute right thing to do. I guess one more thing on this is have they talked about the realignment of the divisions yet? 
Because Manitoba is, or they're going to be a West team, right? They're going to have to be I a heard, West and Detroit. Heard, Detroit, I heard, has always kind of uh, wanted to be in the East. Wanted to be. And but I, I heard they Nashville might, too. Nashville makes sense, too. Nashville's easy because you can just slide them in where Atlanta was. Detroit, you really can't do that. If you right. do Detroit, then you probably got to put them with who? Like Pittsburgh? True. Or yeah. it's it's interesting, but that might be a long long discussion. Yeah, that is interesting, and that's something to look for. Look, definitely something I'm sure we'll talk about in the future. Yeah, this is fun, except for if you're a Thrashers fan, I guess. But that it doesn't exist. Right. All right, number three. Uh, the NFLPA has decided that they're going to stage their own r- rookie symposium for the rookies. Uh, the NFL decided last week that because of the lockout, they couldn't hold the rookie symposium, so... Uh, the NFLPA is going to step up and, and do it on their own. It's going to be in Washington on June 28th and 29th. Every drafted rookie, all 254 of them are invited. Um, we're doing this because it's the right thing to do, an NFLPA spokesman said. Uh, the forum will cover financial education and planning, proper behavior on and off the field, and other information to prepare rookies for a future in the NFL. That's from the Associated Press and on ESPN.com. Now, Don, here's what I want to ask you. Yeah. Last week, Adam Schefter was on the show, and Adam Schefter broke the news that day that the NFL Symposium was off. Right. Okay. The week before that, Peter King was on our show. The week before that, Jason Lochnaforo was on our show. My question to you is, how would you rate those three as guests to the sportscasters? (laughs) Well, they'd probably be one, two, and three in some order. At least as far as uh, I, yes, they it, will definitely be one, two, or three in some order. That's correct. <laughs> no, I mean my as far as is, everybody what is the go- order. Um, as far as Buzz goes, it's got to be Schefter. Like he's just the man when it comes to football. Peter King probably has it in terms of notoriety. You know what I mean? Like just as the. Uh, but what about as a guest on the sportscasters? How would you rank them? Maybe in the order you listed. Lachnafora best, King second King, best, Schefter. and Schefter worst. I would probably, the reason I bring this up, and look it, when we get a guest on this show, and I book a guest, the only res- responsibility that person has to this show is to come on and be a guest. Right. That's all they agree to. Some guests are willing to do more. Some guests are willing to tweet. Some guests are willing to put it on their website. Some guests are willing to, I don't know. Give us advice afterwards. Right, right. Uh, other guests are interested in just being on the show and that being it, and that's okay. But I think when you have three people who are so similar in job, the way that Adam Schefter, Peter King, and Jason Lachnafor is, it's impossible not to compare, them a, compare them a bit. Right. And I think that if I had to pick a number one, it probably would be Jason Lachnafora. If I had to p- pick a number two, it would probably be Peter King. If I had to pick a number three, it would definitely be Adam Schefter. So he agreed, yeah. I wouldn't consider the other two for number three, but I would consider switching around the one other two. two as one and two. And I don't know if that's me being kind of disappointed that Adam Schefter thinks it's narcissistic for him to tweet about being on the show. And I think I can safely say this without any repercussions because I know the second Adam Schefter stopped being on the sportscasters, he stopped thinking about it. Where I think you could go up to Jason Lachnafora or Peter King and ask them, 
if they were on the show. And I think they would much more likely remember the experience, be able to say something about it. Where I think Adam Schefter maybe had his arm tied by a, twisted <laughs> by a very nice PR guy at ESPN who set that up for us. And it kind of played off a little bit in the interview that maybe he was doing something he didn't completely want to do. Well, when maybe. Peter... I'll, I'll say to that, when Peter King first came on, uh, he was probably the most, I shouldn't say intimidating, but it's it's a name, you know what I mean, that we had on. And when he first picked up the phone, we kind of do like with everybody, we're doing a little behind the, we're breaking down the fourth wall here, but Peter King, we do like a little pre-interview thing just to let him know what's up and what we're going to be talking about and whatever. And he wasn't overly enthusiastic sounding at that point. But then and we by had the been end, warned about that. Right, right. Yeah. But by the end of it, he seemed like he had a good time, and uh, he was nice, and he was nice enough to re- retweet it or tweet on his own. I don't remember how that worked out. but So he kind of came around. But uh, And Jason Lockenfort was just cool the whole way through. Yeah, Jason, you know, Jason Lockenfort, I, I could see coming on on a semi-regular basis. Peter King, I could see coming on another time or two. Right. You know, it depends how long this goes. If we're here for 10 years, I think we could maybe get him 10 times. You know, uh, I don't know what the future holds, but I don't know if I don't know if there's any reason for this podcast to ever have Adam Schefter again. Yeah, I mean, he is the man when it comes to football news. He's usually the guy. And you know what? Maybe timing was against us. Maybe because he's so good at at kind of bringing the news forward, and with it being a lockout right now, there's not a, a lot of news to talk about. Right. And I kind of sensed in the interview his frustration with that fact, because when I asked him what his favorite thing to do. He just said work, and I think he's frustrated by the fact that right now there's less work. Yeah, he's probably been asked the same questions in this. He's typically used to probably week to week to week having new big stories every single week. Like the NFL never stops. Even in the offseason, you've got whatever, the uh, combine and all that stuff. Now he's had about a month of maybe one or two significant stories. Like you said, the symposium getting canceled was really the first thing to actually And how exciting officially is that? Get, it's not, right. So he's probably been asked the same questions over and over and over again. And some of the questions are impossible to answer. You, I guess you have to decide. You're either going to answer the questions hypothetically or you're not going to answer them at all because they're impossible being that we don't know what the framework of the league is going to be when it returns. Right. We don't know who's going to be a free agent, who isn't going to be a free agent. We don't know if there's going to be a salary cap, if there's not going to be a salary cap. So when I asked him the question, do you think Peyton Manning and Drew Brees are going to get new contracts? I understand that that's in a way impossible to answer. Right. But in another sense, this league is going to start again at some point. And when that point happens, Drew Brees and Peyton Manning are going to need new contracts. Yep. So you can answer the question that way, or you can choose to answer it the way he did and say, look it, it's impossible to answer, and it's frustrating, <laughs> right. and I know it's frustrating. Right. You know, and I'm not, I'm not taking anything away from Adam Schefter in that point. I understand what he meant, but yeah, that's I don't a know. Interesting this, debate <laughs> it's there. It's like a post-show conversation. But uh, Here's what we're going to do the rest of the show today. Real quick, I just want to yeah. add, like, about the lockout, the more you... It's so weird to think that the owners really they hold all the cards right now because they own stadiums. I mean, that's all that like these players have no contracts right now, as far as I understand, right? Like, if they could form their own league with stadiums and stuff, you'd have NFL talent on every team because it would be the NFL players. You would just need a place to play. It's so weird that just the grand, like, just the billionaires hold this much power because. They have places to hold the games, basically. 
Yeah, and they have the, they have the shield, you know, right, the NFL right, shield. The NFL, right. And, uh, you know, they but have, I would have to think if Peyton Manning and Drew Brees and all these players left and started like a USFL or whatever, I mean, they actually do have places to play. They just wouldn't get as much money in that UFL. League well, and you know, it's a union issue too. I mean, do you want to be a scab like right. that? No, right. You know, like uh, in newspapers, all the best writers could just say, forget the Washington Post, and they could walk away and start their own mega newspaper. Right. But then you leave behind some of your brethren, so to speak, some of the lesser writers or reporters. It just seems the more you read about uh, people like Drew Brees, and he's got a lot, he's, he's a smart guy. He's got a lot of interesting things to say about uh, how this has been a foregone conclusion since like 2008. I can't remember the article, otherwise I would tell you where I was reading all this today, but it's interesting to hear. It almost seems like they're getting further apart, not closer. Drew Brees is almost the Tom Glavin from the baseball strike in 1994. I don't even remember, but Tom Glavin was maybe the biggest name, biggest face that was willing to speak to the media, talk about the issues, be a, be outspoken. Right, it's cool that he's doing it because then and you have some idea of what's going on. But they got they got to get it over with already. Yeah. Enough. It's 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 a cash cow no matter what. Figure out how you're going to split it up and get back to playing. Yep. All right. Enough lockout and. Adam All right. Schefter here's where we go from here. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with James Andrew Miller, the author of Those Guys Have All the Fun. And we're going to come back after that for a real quick book club update. I'm going to give you a clue right now that the update is there's not much of an update. <laughs> and then we're going to come back after that with an interview with Glenn Davis of Sports Grid. And we're going to end episode 23 with pick four. So. Let's regroup, and we'll be right back with James Andrew, James Andrew Miller. Our next guest is from Brooks County, Pennsylvania and received his undergraduate degree in economics and political science with honors from Occidental College in Los Angeles, and a master's in literature with honors from Ox Oxford University, and an MBA with honors from Harvard University. His first book, Running in Place Inside the Senate, was a well-received bestseller based partially on his time in the office of Senate Majority Leader Howard Baker Jr. He and his friend Tom Shales also co-authored a book called Live from New York, an Uncensored History, the book spent 15 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and was named by Fortune magazine as one of the top 75 books ever written about the workplace. He and his friend Shales are at it again, authoring an over 700-page book on the incredible story of ESPN. A warm sportscaster's welcome to James Andrew Miller. How hey, you doing thanks today? Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you very much. I'm a little bit intimidated by all that education, I gotta say. <laughs> don't be you want to go back maybe it's time to get another degree i don't know you don't have a yale degree yet maybe maybe you can uh but uh yeah oh geez okay time to uh make sure i'm grammatically correct here but actually i have to tell you that i have been anticipating this day since before there was a sportscasters and the short story is that when we decided that we would start this podcast we kind of started to think, well, what would it be about? Uh, would it just be a regular sports podcast? Would we focus on Buffalo. Where would we go with it? And uh, we just decided we wanted to incorporate the media. We started doing a little bit of research. And the idea of your book 
came up and uh, someone had mentioned there's this really cool book coming out and uh, you had a Twitter feed and I, sta- I, I jumped on that and I got a hold of the publisher and way back in January, uh, we were uh, on the list to get the book and to have you on and it was put a little pressure on to create a podcast. <laughs> so we did that and we're about 30 uh, episodes in and uh, it's been pretty successful, I think. And finally, here you are to talk about this incredible book, which I've had the chance to read, much to the dismay of my girlfriend, as I spent the entire Memorial Day weekend uh, kind of breaking down all 700 pages. But uh, uh, I just want to welcome you to the show. And uh, let's start here. Well, congratulations on the success of the podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. So you went from the definitive history of a, show, a television show like Saturday Night Live to the definitive history of a television station, ESPN. How did you make that jump? Why did you make that jump? And what made ESPN so compelling? Well, I've been watching ESPN for a long time, and the truth is that um, it's one of the great media success stories of all time. And the history of broadcasting, I mean, it's certainly right up there. And in my mind, uh, there wasn't at least even the recent account of, you know, how is that explained? How did it get so big? How did it get so dominant? What were some of the things that were going on behind the scenes? What do these people that we, you know, hang out in our living rooms with all the time, what do they really sound like when the camera's not on? And so there was kind of like a, like many different strains running together that, you know, questions that hadn't been answered. And I thought if you could really talk to people directly and answer and get some of these answers, it might be a compelling book. There was a book written, I don't know, about 10 years ago about ESPN and it didn't really get much buzz at all. Kind of came on the shelf, kind of came and went. Did you look at that book and, and kind of say, okay, this is what we want to do different did you kind of pretend like that book didn't even exist? Or how, how did you deal with the fact that maybe some of this story had been told already? Well, you know, I mean, if you sit down to write a biography about Lincoln, and I think I have about 400 of them in my bookcase, um, eventually you're going to get around to, you know, mentioning the fact that he debated Stephen Douglas and he was married to a woman named Mary and everything else. So, I mean, certainly that book, um, you know, that was written, I guess, yeah, a decade ago. Um, that did not enjoy the... Um, participation at ESPN, and, mm. and I must say that the, for the first year they shut me out of the campus. They decided not to participate as well, so I, I kind of know how he felt. But um, I guess you know the best thing to do, at least for me, was to do what happened with Saturday Night Live, which is you, you you just try and force yourself to to not pay attention to anything else that had been written before, because otherwise you know you, you start to just second guess yourself or you get. Um, you get into a mindset whereby you're trying to do things differently just for the sake of doing them differently. I mean, there are certain, I'm sure there are things in there that, in our book, that um, were in that book. But um, the question is, you know, how do you do it differently or who is speaking on the record versus who is not speaking on the record? I didn't feel in competition with that book. Um, You know, that, I'm sure that, you know, he spent a lot of time working very hard in that book and is proud of his achievements there and, uh, you know, this is this the fact that this book came along is, is no reflection on anything about that book. It's James Andrew Miller and Tom Shales. Now you've been kind of uh, on the you've been in the maybe in the the media a bit more. You um, were doing the Twitter, and I'm just wondering, kind of, how did you guys break up the work? What, what was your role in putting the book together, and what did Mr. Shales? 
what was his role, and how have the two of you been able to develop a chemistry to produce two outstanding books like that? Uh, well, I, I think, let's just say, uh, Tommy's not a, let's see, um, he's not a big sports fan. I think he was more interested in the um, Saturday Night Live book, and I think that, um, you know, I think sports was, uh, sports is not something that he, he generally watches or pays much attention to. So I think that, you know, the Saturday Live book was definitely more of interest to him. Okay. Interesting. So, as I said, the, the, this book has kind of always been on our mind as we've progressed as a podcast. And one of the guests we've had from ESPN uh, is John Butchergrass. And he's worked at ESPN. I know I dropped an email about this, but it'll be interesting to see what you say. When we brought the book up to him, he kind of seemed angry because he said he's worked at ESPN 15 years and no one approached him uh, to talk to him about the book. Do you think that that's just because maybe his role as kind of a hockey guy in the station really didn't come up much in the book? Or is it that, you know, you interviewed all of these people, yet here's a 15-year employee of ESPN who's kind of left out. How does something like that happen? Um, I think the easy answer is that, you know, um, there's 6,000 employees right. and there's been, and, you know, that's currently, and there's been, you know, tons more that have come and gone through the years. Um, I certainly don't think it's any reflection whatsoever um, against his, you know, work uh, or the kind of person he is. Um, I just think that, you know, like literally um, got to the point where, you know, we couldn't interview everybody and didn't want to waste people's time. And I think that, you know, there'll be future additions to this book. And he certainly, uh, and I'm not just saying this, I, I had this before I heard from you on the email. He certainly, um, you know, at, uh, at the, you know, near the top of the list for the next go round. So, uh, I'm sure if he's, if he's willing, I'm sure we're going to get, a, you know, I'm going to get a chance to interview him and, uh, you know, hear from him directly. Interesting. One of my favorite things about the book is the cover. It just jumps right out to you. Um, it's, it's very engaging. makes you think ESPN. Have you heard from anyone e- at ESPN who's mad that they aren't on the cover? Uh, when the cover came out, by the way, a really interesting guy named Keith Hayes at the publisher, H-A-Y-E-S, he designed it. Um, I thought he did a great job. Beautiful. Um, when the first cover first came out, believe it or not, I somehow... A previous version got out first, and that version had like Bob Knight's picture on it, Joe Torrey's picture on it, um, a couple others who didn't wind up. And like I heard from a lot of people about, you know, um, why is so and so on there and not so and so? And and then of course when the final version came out, um, the same thing happened. I mean, look, the the great thing is that we're not dealing with quantum physics. There's not a specific equation here whereby, you know, one and one equals two. This is all subjective stuff. This is all a matter of opinion. Um, I had a fun time choosing the cover and the people who went on the cover um, just because it was, you know, um, it was just interesting to think about it. Um, but the, but the, the truth also is that you could, you know, substitute a lot of those faces, um, you know, for other people. Um, it's, it's not a science. So I, I was pleased that people had a reaction. When the stories first, obviously the book was embargo for a while, and uh, nobody really knew exactly what was going to be in it. And uh, when the first kind of GQ article came out about Keith, uh, Keith Olbermann, 
it didn't really shock me that that guy ended up being kind of a curmudgeon in a way or kind of is portrayed that way in the book. What did surprise me as I read the book is is how Mike Chirico um, really isn't what he seems. Uh, he I know he's a Newhouse graduate. Uh, he comes across on the air as very, very humble. Uh, I, ca- I somewhat enjoy his, his work. I think he's done a good job at Monday Night Football. And yet there's plenty of people in the book who uh, are very excited to kind of throw Mike Trico under the bus. Did that surprise you as much as it surprised me? Um, well, I think that, you know, look, I was glad that people were candid. I mean, when you do a book like this, you know, your value proposition to the reader is, I'm going to give you something that you don't already know. So there was, you know, I was pleased that this during this past week when the book has been out, well, I heard it from a lot of ESPN uh, people who have said, you know, I've worked here for 15, 20 years, and I didn't know this, or I didn't know so-and-so felt this way or whatever. Um, the thing about Tariko and specifically about Tariko and Kornheiser, is that I actually don't blame Tariko so much as I do management, because Tariko and Kornheiser are such fundamentally different people with incredibly divergent um, opinions about how to cover, you know, a football game um, like Monday Night Football. So it was, you know, it was kind of like an accident waiting to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and maybe another guy who doesn't uh, think too kindly on Chirico is Bill Simmons. And, and what do you think about the feud there? Well, Bill, um, I think he was incredibly protective of Tony. And I think that he saw you know, Tony being treated a certain way and wanted to come to his defense. And, you know, you got to give him credit for that. Um, I thought that was, that was quite noble of, of him to do. That's interesting. Let's talk about Simmons for a little bit because Simmons is maybe the most fa- fascinating for me. Uh, he's a guy from Boston who started uh, basically just writing on his own and uh, creates this relationship with ESPN and becomes basically their, arguably their biggest star. Um, are you surprised basically at how much power ESPN has been willing to give Simmons over the years? And do you think that they kind of regret creating what is Simmons now, this kind of, you know, can't live with him, can't live without him, fact, you know, guy who goes against the bosses and kind of has this FU mentality? I don't think they regret it at all. I think that Grantland um, is certainly... Um, exhibit A about how much they're committed to him and how much they value him in the organization. I think that, you know, I think your point is well taken, though. They don't do a good job with stars. Um, you know, when, when stars get power, they want, you know, privilege and they want more money, and that's just something that ESPN, you know, doesn't really encourage. But in the case of Simmons, I think because he is such a dominant player in his field, uh, you know, on the web, that I think they've made an exception, and I think they're really, really glad about it. You know what else is interesting about Simmons is it seems like when he has an idea and he follows through with it, that ESPN kind of comes with him. And maybe one idea I have in mind is podcasting. Uh, he was one of the first ESPN people to have a podcast, the BS Report, and it seems like now that's something that ESPN has embraced, and they have maybe 50, 60 podcasts, and maybe uh, you know all kinds of different personalities from ESPN have a, a small role in podcasting. Um, is, is that uh, does that speak to the power of Simmons a bit? I think so. I think you could also look at Thirty for Thirty, yeah, um, because that was a huge undertaking, a costly undertaking, and you know he was 
certainly, um, you know, um, one of the early champions, if not, you know, according to some, the definitive early champion. So, um, you know, the fact that they were able to get behind him on something like uh, a project that big as well, I think is very, uh, very revealing. Yeah, it, it seems like um, he's just, you know, such a powerful guy there. And like you said, they don't deal well with stars. And maybe there's a lot of proof in that with uh, Dan Patrick and, and Keith Olbermann. Um, tell us a little bit about their stories in the sense of, w- did anything surprise you when, you, when you, were, you were able to sit down with both of them, correct? With Dan and Keith? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and did anything surprise you um, in terms of their relationship with ESPN or ESPN's relationship with them? Um, well, you know, you have to remember, part of it was, you know, when it occurred. It occurred in the early 90s, before we kind of understood ESPN to be as dominant as it is today. And I think that that's important to keep in mind, because, you know, management was dealing with some issues with Keith and Dan that they had never dealt with before. I mean, Berman was a star, but Berman wasn't, you know, challenging them the way that Keith and Dan did. And I think, and particularly Keith. And I think that so management learned a lot about themselves when they talked with Keith and dealing with some of those problems. Um, it was a, it was a big eye opener for them. Yeah, uh, it's you know it's interesting because I, I wonder this. You've you've kind of been all over the place doing interviews for this book, and you mentioned that it's, it's a very very candid book. And has it been incom- uncomfortable for you at all to now that it's out? Go on some of these shows. Go on the Dan Patrick Show you know, be interviewed by Tony Kornheiser? Has it put you in any strange uh, situations? And did you think it was weird that Tony Kornheiser didn't want to talk about his role in the book at all? Um, no, it hasn't been weird for me. I stand by the work. Um, nobody's ca- nobody's uh, claiming that they didn't say something or nobody's um, so far said, you know, um, got something wrong with the reporting. So the most important thing is that, you know, um, I stand by the book, so I don't mind going on with you know, um, whoever it is to, to talk about it, um, as, uh, you know, I mean, as long as they're responsible journalists. But, but I think um, in terms of Tony, it didn't surprise me at all because Tony, he, he's so, uh, <laughs> you know, he's just a peculiar kind of guy. I mean, in the sense that he doesn't hide his emotions and he's very honest about things. And so I, I would assume that he'd want to, like, you know, kind of stay away from anything having to do about himself because God knows what he would say. John Saunders is a guy that I've heard mentioned a lot of times when people ask you, who did you find most interesting? What was it about John Saunders that uh, made him so compelling and made you enjoy your time with him so much? Well, I don't know if it was compelling. It was just such a huge disparity between the guy you see on the screen and the guy who's talking. He's much more animated and much more forceful, much more opinionated. Um, You know, maybe part of it is that, you know, it, specifically with the sports reporters, he, you know, he's supposed to be like the moderator and just keep on keep things going. But he really, really um, does an amazing job of, you know, when you're sitting down with him one-on-one, of, of being very passionate about his opinions and, and, you know, quite forceful. You know, as we've been sitting here, I've, I've been kind of thinking about an interesting Catch-22, and that is, in one breath, we've said that ESPN doesn't do well with stars, yet ESPN creates a lot of stars in the sense that, they have always done a really good job of, of picking out sports writers from around the country and taking them on the other side of the newspaper and putting them into our living rooms and really creating stars out of them. 
And th- although they might have been successful writers and, and really big in their cities, I think ESPN has given them a whole new life. Maybe uh, Wilbon is an example of that. Maybe Woody Page is maybe a better example of that. And then ESPN has to deal with them as stars. And that, that's got to be a real catch-22 for them, huh? Um, I think so. But then again, you know, they kind of keep them manageable. I think that if any of those people you mentioned um, were to have gotten too big or too uncontrollable, then they'd be gone. I mean, that's just that's just the truth. Um, Jay Mariotti you know, may be a good example of that. Pardon me? Jay Mariotti may be a good example of what you're saying there. Uh, yeah, although he had some other issues which contributed to his, uh, you know, to his downfall. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's been, been a lot of people either through specific behavior or they just got, you know, too big for their, you know, uh, their egos were just too big for the place and they acted like a jerk. I mean, you know, I think there's a couple people in there that, um, you know, mention that, um, about their careers and, uh, they regret it. Yeah, the sportscasters are here with James Andrew Miller. He is at ESPN Book on Twitter. The book, of course, is called Those Guys Have All the Fun Inside the World of ESPN. A few more minutes here, a couple more questions. Uh, The NHL has recently decided uh, that they're better off without uh, ESPN. And it kind of brings me to a, a bigger point of, if you look at soccer, you know, once ESPN threw their hat in the ring, they obviously do a much better job of promoting soccer, putting soccer on SportsCenter, making soccer a part of their other shows and their other platforms, you know, going through the car wash, so to speak. You know, where hockey now is not going to be a priority for them. It's not on their network, and they're going to lose time on SportsCenter, you know, lose time in the ESPN car wash. Uh, Do you think that the NHL made a mistake uh, not being on the ESPN networks, or do you think that despite how large ESPN is, Maybe they didn't have room anyway for the NHL, and they're better off sticking in their niche with Versus. Well, I think that, you know, remember, ESPN and the NHL were together, and I think that what happened was uh, the NHL got moved over to NHL to, to ESPN2, and so the league felt like they weren't getting um, a lot of attention at all, even though they were still with um, ESPN. So rather than be a a tiny fish in a big pond, they decided that they wanted to be a big fish in a small pond. Um, sorry for the cliche metaphor, no, but right. I think that's you know basically what they've decided to do. And I think also at this point, the league is kind of almost, um, they're, they're, they're almost saying to ESPN, look, you have to cover us even though you don't own us, uh, you're not in business with us, because... Um, you know, we're, we're just too big to be ignored. And if you don't have highlights about um, the NHL and Sports Center, you're going to get complaints from your customers. Yeah, yeah interesting. Uh, I, you know, I think that the NHL probably would have never gotten a billion dollars, two billion dollars from ESPN. And, and I think that's probably the driving force and why they stayed. And, you know, I, I think they are, a niche, they are a niche sport. There's no doubt about it. So ESPN will probably cover them, you know, however they choose. But it's an interesting thing down the road. Now, some people have said that this book is about 200 pages too long. You said that on Twitter, I believe, that it was hard for you to let go of about 200 pages of information that you had. And, and maybe that's one reason why you say this will be like a volume one and there will be more, more books to come because there's just so much more to cover. What's maybe a story that, that left on the cutting room floor that you can kind of share with our listeners? 
Um, sure. I mean, the funny thing is, though, that uh, people say that, but then everybody has different parts that they really like. So you think that, oh, so somebody says, oh, well, you know, I didn't need to know such and such. Um, but then somebody else you talk to and says, that was my, my favorite part of the book. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, it, it's, um, it's part of the reason why it got so big. But, I mean, look, there's some things on the cutting room floor. I mean, with Saturday Night Live, um, we wound up cutting up, cutting some pages out of the hardcover and adding some new pages for the paperback. So I'm not sure if that's going to happen or not, but I, I probably need to just kind of hold on to them for the time being, just in case, if you don't mind. Right, yeah, um, I understand. But, but I think that there's, there's certainly a lot more behind-the-scenes stories of, uh, of, of people, you know, kind of telling some things that we didn't know went on. You know, there was one thing I never understood, and that was Rush, the whole Rush Limbaugh ESPN team. It seemed like ESPN brought Rush Limbaugh in to do something specific, and then when he did that specific thing, ESPN kind of couldn't handle the heat and just kind of pulled the plug. Um, what did you learn about the relationship between ESPN and Rush Limbaugh and how short-lived it was? Oh, that was um, one of my favorite things to report on. Um, in part because I was able to talk to Rush, Tom Jackson, Mark Shapiro, who was head of programming at the time, Chris Berman, and others. Um, it's, you know, it's a very complicated issue. It turns out that it's an issue that talks about, that speaks about race. It talks about, um, it, it talks about journalism. It talks about the role of producers in the control room. And it talks about guts. I mean, there, there, it is amazing to hear or to read what Mark Shapiro says in, in the book about, you know, he really faults um, Tom Jackson and the others for not listening carefully to Rush and for not saying something right away. Um, you know, there was probably about 36 hours of silence. Nobody said anything about Rush, what Rush had said after he said it. So um, I just found it very interesting that, uh, you know, the divergence of opinion. This might be an impossible question to answer, but how do you think that situation would have been different if Twitter was what Twitter is today then? You know, like, for example, when Jay Cutler got hurt, you know, everyone rushes to Twitter, and, uh, you know, there's all these comments about Jay Cutler and, you know, should he be in, shouldn't he be in. That, that instance in ESPN history really makes me wish that Twitter's been along all, around all along because I wonder if maybe that 36 hours of silence you speak about would have been impossible uh, if Twitter was around at that time? You know, I think that's a really interesting question. I think, I think it probably would have changed it. Um, I think that, you know, certainly some people would have seized upon Rush's comments as objectionable, um, and then he would have had also some real support, um, you know, a lot quicker than, than waiting two days. So I think you're right. I think it definitely, definitely would have been um, a much different story. A lot of people call Twitter a loaded gun, and I know ESPN has kind of went back and forth with their policies on Twitter. And um, I know I remember when uh, Adam Schefter was about to switch over from ESPN, from the NFL Network to ESPN. He was really nervous because he really embraced Twitter, really loved it. Uh, do you think Twitter makes ESPN nervous overall? And and how do you see the role of Twitter uh, mixing with ESPN as we go forward here? Well, I think it's just another huge independent variable. It's something that, you know, ESPN has to figure out how to control or at least monitor because they have so many employees on Twitter now. I think it's also, you know, a, a kind of um, difficult thing to navigate in terms of, okay, are they breaking the story or is Fox breaking the story? Is pro football 
uh, talk, you know, breaking the story. There's there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on, um, you know, now via Twitter that they really have to be careful about. Yeah, it's and you know we we kind of joked before on the show that you know athletes can put something out on Twitter and then if it doesn't turn out correct or isn't true they just kind of say they were kidding but it doesn't really work that way for journalists you know uh, if they make a mistake on Twitter they kind of really have to fall on the sword so to speak so it really increases the loaded gun uh, point of Twitter. But uh, just maybe one or two more questions about the book. Two of the biggest stars on ESPN right now, uh, female stars are Michelle Beadle and, um, oh, geez, why am I drawing a blank on her name? Help me out here. Aaron Andrews. Aaron Andrews, thank you. Uh, there's been some talk that maybe they have clashing personalities. What did you find out about the way uh, Michelle Beadle and Aaron Andrews kind of work together and coexist? I didn't really focus on it. I mean, I did um, talk to, I did talk to Michelle, and uh, she was uh, honest enough to, to say that she saw that, awful um you know video that um that that creep made of aaron right and i think that kind of set things off but um you know uh i i i really think that you know the way that they they don't really cross paths a lot so i try not to uh kind of spend a lot of time on on that who do you think is the next breakout star at espn that will kind of you know like their career will grow beyond ESPN and will be stars even bigger than the, 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 the business itself. You know, like maybe over Keith Oberman is maybe an example of that. Someone who left ESPN and, and became a huge star in the news world, or uh, maybe, I, I don't know if I can think of another example off the top of my I mean, head. Look, people, yeah. people definitely think that Beatles got an incredible future there. Right. Um, you know, uh, I, I mean, I think that there's there's a lot there's so many people at ESPN right now who are you know doing good work. Um, I think there are some people who aren't, but I think that there's there's definitely a good chunk of people. And um, I, I really I, I don't know. I think it's hard to to see exactly where it's all going to go. But I know that Grandland is going to be you know probably a really interesting cradle of, of growth, and uh, and we'll start to see some new faces and. Uh, along with some established faces, but I think that'll be an interesting place to look as well. Jim Rome has one of the most infamous moments in ESPN history. I actually am a huge Saints fan, and uh, in, be- in between the end of one season and the start of another, the Saints signed Jim Everett, and I was really excited to be able to see him on Talk 2, and that kind of ended up the way it ended, and Jim Rome kind of faded away from ESPN for a while, and then he became a star on his own, and ESPN went back to him. Uh, did that, does that surprise you that Jim Rome was maybe able to reestablish himself on ESPN, or do you think the company uh, really works well because they're willing to uh, just bring the people on that people want to see? And, you know, a guy like Simmons, yeah, he might frustrate uh, the the bosses at times, but people love Simmons and people love Jim Rome and, you know, people, some people love Chris Berman even. So, uh, is that one of the strengths of ESPN? Yeah. I mean, look, ESPN is like Baskin Robbins, you know, there's 31 different flavors. I mean, if you don't like, you know, the Bermans of the world, then you've got, you know, other kinds of people. I mean, you, you don't like this person. You, you got somebody else. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's pretty remarkable how deep their bench is. And I think that that's 
part of the reason why they get the attention that they do because it's not like there's you know like they're turning out one specific type of personality or one type of you know analysis um they have a they have a a wide array of of experts and personalities that um you know come on the screen and and give it to you in different ways all right last thing you have put the one thing that makes this book great is that you can tell that you put everything into it your whole heart and is is that is it hard to walk away now? Is that why you want to continue with more volumes? And do you think this could be a movie someday? Do you look at this as now like a life project just because you got so into it? Um, I think that you know I I think that part, this is part of the part of doing a book like this, which is to explore those other um, avenues and 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 to, to to make sure that you know future editions come out and you know all the right things. I mean, it's not a life project but it but it you know you gotta you gotta see it through and seeing it through means that you know you, you do everything that needs to be done with it um because uh obviously there was you know 560 interviews and and three years of work and um that that just has to be followed through okay james andrew miller thank you very much for your time oh thank you so much buddy thank you All right, Don, a real quick book club update. This is where we're at with the book club. We have finished The Captain, The Journey of Derek Jeter by Ian O'Connor. I finished reading it. I'm sure most of you, if you were following along, have finished reading it. I've sent an extra copy of it off to JT Brawley, our friend, to read. And at this point, we are waiting for Ian O'Connor to agree, or how should I put this? We're waiting for Ian O'Connor to live up to the commitment to come on to this show. Right. When we started the book club with the captain, we weren't sure if we would be able to get Ian. Then a really kind person from the publishing office said that Ian would join us, sent me a book, and never heard back from Ian. And it's funny because we're going to have Alex Belth on either next week or the week after Talk a little bit about the Yankees, how their season's going, how Derek Jeter's going. I asked him if he wanted to talk about that book, and he said, you know what? I, my mom told me not to say anything really? if you can't say anything nice at all. So my guess is that Ian O'Connor is not the nicest guy. Yeah, a lot of, lot of behind-the-scenes stuff today on the yeah, show. Yeah, he <laughs> he, he's never really responded to my tweets. Uh, all the communication I've had is through the publisher. But I expect him to be on at some point. Now, in the meantime, I thought that a good way to go from this point forward with the book club is to focus on a book on the other coast. And there's a perfect one out right now. And I believe it's called The, ba- uh, the Band of Misfits. Um, I'm going to look it up right now. It's, it's a book about the San Francisco Giants. And it's written by a guy named Andrew Bagsley. It's called The Band of Misfits. Uh, it's by Andrew Baggerly. And that will probably be the next book. Now, I've talked to Andrew and I've talked to the publisher, and it seems like that book's going to come out our way here in Buffalo. We're going to have a copy. We'll have a chance to read it together, and we'll have a chance to have Andrew on. But sometimes, these authors, Don, a little <laughs> tough to deal with. Yeah, yeah. But uh, A Band of Misfits, Tales of the 2010 San Francisco Giants by Andrew Baggerly should be, unless I tell you different, the next book for the book club. And we will be right back with Glenn Davis 
from SportsGrid. Our next guest is coming to us live from the Soho District of New York City, is a native of New Jersey and a graduate of Rutgers. He isn't that Glenn Davis. He is this Glenn Davis from SportsGrid.com. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? Uh, we're doing really good. Um, very Love the site, first of all. Find it Thank very you. interesting. Uh, really like the layout. It, it looks really, it, it's aesthetically very pleasing. But I guess the first place to start is where did the idea come for the website? What exactly is the website's mission? My partner in looking it o- not my well yeah uh, <laughs> in looking it over kind of said it looked like uh, maybe a TMZ of sports. But how would you guys describe it? Where did the idea come from, and what do you guys try to accomplish every day? Well, the idea for it was really conceived before I actually started even working here. But uh, we have a bunch of other sites. Uh, the first one is a uh, media and politics website called Mediaite. And each of our sites has a feature called the Power Grid, which I imagine you've seen on Sports Grid. Yep. It ranks all figures throughout the sports world and sports media. And it's supposed to be the feature for us that really kind of set us apart to begin with. And it worked to start because I think it help generate a lot of interest and make us look not quite like every single other site out there. But really, we, I guess, shifted the mission of the site a little away from focusing on the power grid so much and focused more on just writing about what's going on in sports. And we have probably a pretty strong focus on sports media as well. I think it probably stopped short of calling us at TMZ of sports, but uh, we certainly will sort of focus on the big rumors of the day. And, for example, the Tiger Woods story, uh, we will not shy away from that kind of thing. Right. But we probably... um, TMZ is probably... A little, a little beyond what we're going for on the, on the on the crazy scale. Yeah, I think I think I just meant more along the lines of that. It focused it, it, a lot of it's on the entertainment side of sports. Like uh, your right, cover right. story now is uh, on Madden, and you have something about the uh, the uh, attractive girl model. from <laughs> the Laker games. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, let's that back was, up. Uh, yeah, let's back up one step. Tell us a little bit about the power grid, how it works. And uh, tell us why there isn't a podcast section, why we're not listed as, like, number four with an up arrow or something. <laughs> uh, well, uh, we, uh, we, can, we can work on that for you later. We can work something out. Okay. But um, we basically, like I said, we wanted it to really be a defining feature of the site when we first launched, so it's huge. It has tons of people. I mean, we ideally wanted it to have really every player from the major sports, all the major media figures, and we just really wanted to be a debate starter, really. That that was the goal. And I think at the beginning it definitely got some attention for that. And, I mean, even if people were debating 
it and telling us we were idiots, they were still paying attention to it. Right. So it was really entirely just meant to be a conversation starter. Did you Not get any necessarily for it to be the the be all end all most perfect ranking in the world, although we try our best. Did you get more positive uh, feedback on it or negative feedback from people that maybe thought they were, their favorite players were ranked too low? Or Thankfully, I think the, the feedback was, was pretty positive. Um, there were some people who, uh, and this still happens occasionally, some people who maybe aren't on, uh, aren't on the power grid who want to be on it. <coughs> but um, <laughs> that's, uh, it's understandable. And we, we do what we can when uh, those people come along. Uh, you know, I think I originally found out about the site because Bill Simmons linked to something on it. So it seems like uh, a lot of the big people out there are taking notice of the site and some of the very cool things about it. Uh, you guys have wrote quite a bit today uh, about the, the whole controversy out of Ohio State. Where do you think the uh, Ohio State program goes for there? And what did you think of the Sports Illustrated article that they kind of released a little bit early last night um, to to coincide with the uh, res- resignation of Mr. Tressel. Well, as far as the Sports Illustrated story, I think it was it was a good story. I enjoyed reading it, but I was I think with a lot of other people in maybe I might have gotten my hopes up a little too high for exactly what was going to be in there. Yeah, I agree with I th- that. I think I I even said before it came out like what what else can they say really what what other big revelations can there be? And as it turned out, there weren't, I don't think, any really big revelations of anything we didn't already know or already suspect, but certainly it didn't make the program look good at all. My question is, this is, this is kind of what was my take on it. The story does a really good job of kind of saying, look it, Jim Trestle has some good parts. He has a prayer box and... He helps mentor kids. He has these good good qualities. But then he also has these flaws. And do you think it's possible to run a program as big as Ohio State and not have some of these kind of good and bad qualities? Is maybe his biggest problem kind of when you get caught, you have to kind of fess up. You can't – the cover-up is worse than the lie maybe? I definitely think that the cover-up was the part that really did him in. Because if he'd been up front about it from the beginning, I don't think there's any chance it would have come to this. I'm sure he would still be the coach. And to answer the other thing you asked, I think it would be very, very difficult to run a program, especially the stature of Ohio State, where people are always going to try to latch onto it and try to be a part of it and try to get in with the players and do all those kinds of things. I don't have any tattoos, but... Yeah, I don't have any tattoos, but if I were to get one, I don't know what I would take to the tattoo parlor for barter. Um, has it crossed your mind, like what you might take to the tattoo parlor in exchange for some ink? What I might take? Yeah, like do you have any uh, sports grid memorabilia you might be able to exchange? Maybe uh, have a power grid for tattoo parlors and give favoritism to those that will ink you for free? Oh man, I, I don't know. Let's let's see what's on my desk and see if I have anything really good that I could take over there. <laughs> I have, uh, you guys, maybe the sporting news. I could. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how much that would get me. <laughs> you guys have a story on the front page right now about the uh, cover of Madden and it shows the picture of Peyton Hillis, 
And I wonder, do you think that was a bit of a backfire, uh, the whole tournament? I know it did kind of bring up a lot of interest, but they kind of got stuck with having to put uh, Cleveland Brown running back Peyton Hillis on the cover. Well, I don't know if I would say it backfired because it's, it's still Madden. People are still going to buy it. And like I said, they did generate interest, even though it's not necessarily the most high-profile player. It's still Peyton Hillis, I think, got a lot of attention this year, and he really is a good player. So it, it's, I, I wouldn't say it's a completely out-of-the-blue type cover selection. Obviously, probably not who they would have chosen on their own, but I think it's acceptable, and just the fact that it generated enough interest among fans that the Browns, fans rallied so hard behind Peyton Hills and got him on the cover, I think is, if anything, probably a good sign for Madden and how much influence they have. It kind of reminded me of um, Howard Stern fans rallying around Sanjaya <laughs> a few years ago. Uh, but SportsGrid, how has Twitter changed what you guys do? Well, I think uh, the main thing for us at Twitter is just having another outlet to get our stories out there. And just it's just another way to generate interest. And sometimes there will be a particularly interesting comment we'll notice from from someone who writes, you know, who tweets at SportsGrid, and then we can sort of uh, reply to them and see if we can answer their concerns at all. But um, I think definitely the most important part is just having having that way to get get ourselves out there and like. You said that the way you discovered our site was a, a tweet from Bill Simmons, right? Yes, yeah, he had linked to the so, site. And so, obviously, like it's not only a way for us to get our stories out there on our own, but a way for other people to find out about them and then disseminate them and maybe get get heard in a in a much bigger way when a well-known person kind of puts us out there, like he's done a few times. Do you, Do you worry at all about the... NFL lockout kind of dragging on and and kind of taking some steam away from the sports media and I don't I know we'll you know Ray Lewis has said we're going to have to worry about our personal safety that's not really what I mean right now what I mean kind <laughs> of is more for your website do you think the lack of an NFL is going to hurt the sports media do you think it has that much influence or do you think we're going to have enough to talk about with or without them and maybe will the story just change instead of being about football to just being about when is there going to be football well i think there will most likely always be something to talk about but there will definitely be a lot less if there's no nfl and that's something that my coworker Dan Fogarty and I have sort of gone back and forth about just thinking, man, if there's no NFL in the fall, our jobs are definitely going to be harder. <laughs> right. Hockey. <laughs> it's, uh, not a prospect I'm looking forward to at all. So I'm hoping they can get something worked out. One, just because I would much rather there be an NFL season, there not be just for me personally, but also for the site. Absolutely. Yeah, it, you know, we were, you know, we've talked about the same thing here. It's like, well, you know, we're already getting into the, we're already getting into the summer, and it's almost to the point where we're just going to have baseball, and you got to kind of fight through that. And you know, usually you got training camp and some stuff to kind of fill up the summer. But if none of that happens, it's going to get awfully lonely in the sports world pretty quick. It seems like. Yeah, no, I I would agree with that, and it'll be interesting to see 
I guess if it comes to this, what sort of steps up and fills the void, but uh, it's going to be impossible for anyone thing to do that on its own. As a site that covers media, what what did you think of the James Andrew Miller book? Have you had a chance to look at it? If not, have has anything you've heard about it in the media kind of surprised you? Or is the book kind of what you thought the book would be? Um, it, it's been thus far, I'll admit I haven't had a chance to read the entire thing yet. but It's uh, massive. It's like a Bible. It is. It's huge, but that's a good thing. And so far, I've, I've been enjoying it. It's been about what I thought it would be once I realized that it was an oral history and it was mostly told by the people they interviewed. It's almost all quotes, which I think is interesting because he got people to say a lot of interesting things. And so far, so good. I, uh, is it I maybe the most? So far. I was going to say, is it maybe the most candid thing you've seen about a sports media entity? Like, I can't remember anything else I've read that's been as. Uh, he did, like you said, he did a great job at getting people to say things. I think that's maybe the strength of the book so far. Uh, he really did. I mean, some of the stuff that Bill Simmons said, for one thing, he was very, very candid. I mean, just Tony Kornheiser talking about how he and Chris Berman don't like each other. Tariko? Yeah, Mike Tariko too, and, and just the fact that they got Keith Olbermann to talk at all. Yeah. <laughs> Keith Olbermann's a guy who's really against talking, but I just didn't imagine he'd be saying so much to them with obviously how things ended with him and ESPN. And but you know what's he, funny about Olbermann, before we get past him, is that when the, when the GQ, that original GQ story came out, I think the first thing everyone thought is, wow, Keith Olbermann is quite a curmudgeon. And then I, I found it really interesting that he kind of tweeted, he kind of just said, yeah, it's true, you know, sigh, you know, you got me. <laughs> almost like, it was like, almost like, oh man, oh, uh, man, I'm a jerk and everyone knows now and I can't even fight it because it's, it's true, it's right there in black and white. You know, I was surprised, too, with, with how accurate he said that it was, for the most part. Yeah, he only he only debated of, the contract issue, right? Yeah, a lot of, again, very unflattering things said about him, and he didn't dispute much of it. No, and, and I think it makes him look really bad, and, and I think he knew it, but there wasn't anything he could do about it, right? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, that's sort of a pattern that's repeated itself throughout his career, even post-ESPN. And I guess he sort of just says, well, that's me. Where do you see Sports Grid in the future? Um, what, when you look five years down the road, what's your ideal uh, goals for the website? Where, where, do you, where do you see the website? Oh, man. Well, um, tons of people on it all the time, I would hope. That's, that's the number one goal. Um, we've in more recent months, we've started trying to go for a more media, uh, a heavier media focus in that we're trying to watch more TV, listen to more radio, and pull more clips from shows and write about those to try to, again, get a debate started. Because that's really sort of still a mission of the site and something we want people to do because we want to have a set reason for people to come to the site time and time again and know 
that they can find something and know that they can talk to other people and sort of be a part of a community of readers. That's what we want to build, and that's what I would hope in the months and years to come that we have. Do you think there's room and for the NHL on this site? Uh, well, do you mean like in, in the power grid? Because we do write some about the NHL from time to time because um, I definitely think there is room just when interesting enough things happen. It's like right. any other league, pretty much. Well, it's just like when you look at the site, it's, it's you guys kind of seem to focus on it. It says, you know, NFL, MLB, and there's just no NHL, I guess, spot to click. And it, it just right, it right. just makes me wonder if, you know, maybe the NFL lockout will give you an opportunity to maybe explore uh, the NHL a little bit further. Um, and I, I was just curious if, if you had any plans to expand your coverage of hockey at all or not. Well, it's interesting to say with the NFL lockout, that could be something that happens if there's no uh, football in the fall stretching into when the NHL would start. Then I'm sure that probably is something we'll have to look at a little more heavily is the NHL. And, you know, it's not that we hate hockey or anything like that. Right. Uh, but um, we would obviously focus heavily on the NFL if it was there because it's the most popular league there is. And we're definitely going to have to explore some different options if it's not around. Another big media story that kind of came and kind of came and went pretty quickly uh, but it was in the New York area, is the Ian O'Connor book, The Captain, uh, which I read and I thought it was kind of two books. One book about all this cool stuff that Derek Jeter did until A-Rod came on the team, and then another book about 200 pages about how A-Rod and Jeter don't get along, or they do, or this person thinks they A-Rod should do more, or Jeter should do more, and it just kind of went way downhill real quick, but... Did you have any thoughts on the the captain and kind of the little bit of buzz that it got there about the Jeter and Rodriguez relationship? And what is it like being there in New York? Did you have any different feelings for it? Well, I uh, will admit I have not had a chance to read the captain either uh, as of yet. I've heard good things. What I did read a few years ago when it came out, I don't know if you remember the the Joe Torre book that he co-wrote with with Tom Verducci and that, I think had a lot of similar things about A-Rod and how some of the teammates called him A-Fraud and he really <laughs> seems like the kind of guy who just can't catch a break because of who he is and Derek Jeter has just been in New York from the beginning and always handled himself well even though he seems to clearly be declining as a player now. Everyone will always love him and there's a reason for it. I mean, he's been a really good player for a long time. So I can't blame the New York fans for loving Jeter so much. But um, the whole Jeter-Arod thing, it does seem like it, it takes all kinds of uh, weird twists and turns where, you know, they, when they first broke in, everyone always talked about how they were best friends, and then suddenly they didn't get along anymore because of something Arod said to some magazine. Right. It's just a weird little soap opera type thing that I guess is always surrounds the Yankees. The sportscasters are here with Glenn Davis. He's from the site SportsGrid. It's www.sportsgrid.com. You can also follow them on Twitter. It's just simply at SportsGrid, and they are on Facebook. You can like them as well. Uh, One last question before we let you go. I am one of those people who loves, loved, I guess, Mike and the Mad Dog. And uh, I notice that Mike Francesa ranks very highly on your power grid 
and I also noticed that the Mad Dog is really nowhere to be found. Do you think uh, the Mad Dog is kind of, oh, there he is, number 15. You think he's kind of lost a bit on satellite radio, and do you think that uh, Francesca has kind of won, quote-unquote, since the breakup? Or do you think that uh, Russo, now joining Twitter, kind of will claim some of his audience and bring some people back to satellite radio? How do you see it playing out? Well, I think if, um, as far as getting the most attention and most notoriety goes, I would say, to me, it's always seemed like Mike Francesa won that. He's just sort of a just bigger guy, bigger personality in general, which I guess has helped him in that area. And as far as uh, the Mad Dog goes, like you said, he just joined Twitter. Maybe that'll help. <laughs> I um, I heard at one point that his station I, was getting outrated by like the weather in San Francisco station. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I have not heard that, but uh, I I will take your word for it. Yeah, it's 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 almost sad because, you know, I think it's a case of of and maybe me and Don are like this, maybe we're not. Of them being together is better than them apart. Like they had a great balance of, Frances or of uh, Francesca kind of being a really good he has a lot of sports knowledge and maybe the mad dog brought a little entertainment and francesca's maybe not that entertaining he can be kind of a little bit dull sometimes he can be kind of monotone be kind of almost sometimes it feels like you're talking to your dad maybe if you were to call in you know and he might scold you or something and mad dog's maybe more willing to have fun i, I don't know but i definitely you know always hope for the day where maybe they could be together again but i think we have a better chance at the Beatles reunion at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I wouldn't count on them being together again because uh, it seems like at least Mike is doing pretty well on his own. I, uh, I, don't, I don't know about Mad Dog, if what you're saying is right, but uh, I still think they're uh, probably going to just try to stick it out on their own. Yep. All right, the, sport, it, the site is SportsGrid, www.sportsgrid.com. Again, you can follow him on Twitter. It is at SportsGrid. Glenn Davis, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thanks. All right. One last segment here on the Sportscast for today, episode 22, May 31st, 2011. Again, I want to thank James Andrew Miller and Glenn Davis. Also, I want to remind you to check out our blog and our work that we've done so far with the Fatty Hockey League. You can find that on the sportscasters.blogspot.com. Also, don't be afraid to give us a like on Facebook, facebook.com slash the sportscasters. Also, follow us on Twitter. We are at sports underscore casters. Don is at Don Lake Sports. And I am at Diversity23. All of this information can conveniently be found on our ever-changing website, www.sports-casters.com. Uh, also this week, look for a second episode of the podcast, episode number 23. We had so much to do this week, we had to split it up into two shows. And episode 23 is going to be a preview of the NHL and NBA Finals. We could do the NHL finals ourselves, but we had to bring in Lee Jenkins to help us preview the NBA. the NBA finals. And also, we have an interview with James Wertheim in that episode who has a really interesting article 
about Tiki Barber in last week's Sports Illustrated. He was nice enough to come on and talk to us a little bit about that. And also in episode 23, you can find in this spot a new segment called 9 and 90 that we piloted with FHL star and OHL goalie John Cohen. Anyway, pick four. A little bit better this week. Overall, we went four and four. 500 is better than under 500. <laughs> we both missed our bold predictions. So if you take those out and you just look at the games that we picked, we were actually four and two. That's not bad. So that's not bad. Uh, I won with the Phillies over the Reds. Now, I didn't win because of the logic. And the logic was that Roy Halladay would pitch beautifully and they would win. Instead, that game went 19 innings and the Phillies won five to four. He didn't pitch a complete game 19. He did not pitch no. all 19. Uh, I had the Mavs over Oklahoma City, 100 to 96. I lost the Bruins over the Lightning, 5 to 4. And in my bowl prediction, Dirk had 26 points or 14 less than the 40 I predicted. Don, you were 2 and 2. You won the Tampa Bay over Boston game, 5 to 4. The Heat over the Bulls, 83 to 80. And you lost the Oklahoma City. Ha, I beat you there. Oklahoma <laughs> City to Dallas game, 100 to 96. And unfortunately, your bowl prediction, the lockout marches on. Ugh. Kick us off this week with the game of the week. The game of the week, NHL, Stanley Cup playoffs, the best uh, trophy in all of sports. Boston at Vancouver. I will take Vancouver in game one. I had an interest, I thought I had an interesting stat about how Boston's just seemed to have played a lot more games, and that's not true. They've actually both played the exact same amount of games, but I'm going to stick with Vancouver. was the best team all year. I don't love their goaltending, even though he is a Vesna candidate this year. But I, their offense is phenomenal to watch. Yeah. The, you know, the Canucks are a really exciting team. I've been begging for the NHL to put them on TV all year. I guess they just don't do that. They don't play the Canadian teams in national television for whatever reason. Uh, I know in the past, NBC used to play the Toronto Raptors when <laughs> they were interesting. Yeah. I don't know why the NHL can't do the same thing, but they can't. And here they are with the Canucks in the final. And half the country knows nothing about them. But I will also pick the Canucks. I think that they're going to have not much trouble with the Bruins. Uh, I think the Bruins are going to want to be as physical as they can with the Canucks. I just don't know if they'll be able to catch them. I think the Sedins are on a roll. And I think Roberto Luongo, although he is inconsistent, finds a way to pick his game up just at the right time, kind of like he did for the gold medal game in the Olympics and hopefully for all of Vancouver here in the Stanley Cup Finals. But in game one, I'll pick the Canucks. So one of these teams, though, just as a quick aside, Vancouver has been in the league 40 years like the Sabres, never won a cup. Boston hasn't won a cup, I guess, in 39 years. So someone's yep, going to end a end nice up. long drought. Yep. A game two, uh, I didn't assign this, but this will be my uh, host choice. Uh, Dallas at Miami. I actually meant game two of the series because game one is tonight. I will take Miami at home. I don't like to do it, but I've been saying for a while now that I think they're going to win despite uh, our hex against them. Yeah, uh, my host choice is a baseball game. I have cursed the Pirates. Never will pick them again. (laughs) Uh, I won with the Phillies last week. They happen to play each other. So I'm going to take the Phillies behind Hamels over the Pirates behind Carsons. It's Friday, June 3rd at 7.05. My uh, worldwide leader pick, I actually went with a baseball game, a a thriller Sunday night on ESPN, 8.05, their Sunday night baseball. The Braves at the Mets, and I'm never going to pick the Mets, so I'm going to go with the Braves. 
Yeah, the Mets are a bit of a disaster right now. Yeah, they sure are. Uh, my worldwide leader pick is Game 2 of the NBA Finals. Uh, I'm going to pick the Heat over the Mavs. I think the Mavs' best chance to get a game in Miami, or yeah, in Miami is Game 1. So I'm going to pick the Heat in Game 2 because I think if the Mavs do get a split, they'll get that game in Game 1. My bold prediction this week, um, it's very bold again, so I'm not... I don't have a lot of belief in it, but I'm going to say Vancouver wins in four. I just think Boston plays a real physical style that's got to wear on that. I mean, it wears on other teams, but it's got to wear on themselves too. They've already played 18 games. And like we've already said, I don't know if Vancouver can catch or if Boston can catch Vancouver. So we'll take Vancouver in four. All right. My bold prediction, I think – I don't know if it will be done by next week's show. It might be a holdover, but we should probably be able to know if there's a possibility. And basically, I said that one of the finals will be a sweep and one will go seven games. Oh, nice. So no specification of which one, but one of the uh, either the NBA or NHL finals, one will be a sweep and one will go seven. Uh, just which, which would you think? If Not that we have the specified. I would think that the Heat are a little bit more dominant over the Mavericks than... The Canucks are over the Bruins, so yeah. I would lead towards the basketball being the sweep and the hockey being the seven. Yeah, I could see that. All right. <laughs> Even though I picked Vancouver in four. Again, thank you to James Miller. Thank you to Glenn Davis. Look for us this week with episode number 23 featuring Sports Illustrated's James Wertheim and Lee Jenkins. Don, cue the hip, and we'll see you soon. All uh-huh. right.